0: Our Father, we thank You for the privilege of worship. Thank You for song and for musicians and for writers who put lyrics and music together. And it gives voice to things at times that we have trouble articulating ourselves but it gives expression to our delight in you, our satisfaction in you, our need for you, your power and your glory, your effectiveness. And thank you, Father, for the reminder this morning that only you are God. Not only so many people, but so many things around us are purporting to be the answer to our problems and satisfying to our needs, but none of them can approach your ability as the infinite, sovereign, eternal God of the universe. Only you are eternal. Only you have omniscience. Only you are self-created. Only you are all Living source of life and always alive. You have everything. And so we turn to you. Would you satisfy us this morning with you? Might our, might our propensity in anxious moments this week And might our propensity in moments of temptation, and might our propensity in our weariness, be to turn to you because of what we learn of you in this word this morning. So would you transform us, for we know that's why this word is given To reveal your goodness, your grace, your power, your authority. But also to bring all that you are to bear on our lives so that we might be conformed to our Savior. So would you be pleased to do that even as we hear your word this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Goats are social creatures, apparently. I'm not a goat expert, but that's what I read this week. They like to hang out together and do stuff together. So, a couple of years ago, when two goats in a yard in Pennsylvania broke free, it's not surprising that they took to their adventure together. Their escapades took them to the Mahoning River Bridge, where they found access to an 8-inch wide lip "...to the beam that supported the bridge. One of them evidently said to the other, I wonder where this goes." And so they went, one following the other. And soon they found themselves a hundred feet above the ground on an eight-inch lip facing an abutment by which they could not pass." The only way, the only thing to do was to work your way out onto a little concrete spot that was supporting the bridge. Turn around and go the other direction. One of them accomplished it. The other one did not. Which left them with this dilemma. Apparently, the brown goat who managed the turnaround was prodding the white goat by butting him occasionally in the head. (laughs) Estimates by when they escaped from their yard indicates that they were at this about 18 hours before they were discovered. Despite the encouragement of the brown goat to the white goat to go backwards along the lip... It was eight inches wide and he wasn't very accommodating. And so there they stood. They were stuck. I hope you've never been on a literal ledge like that. But I'm sure you've been in positions that you considered to be precarious at times, haven't you? You've experienced hard decisions. And like the white goat, you have felt at times like people were pushing you, prodding you, provoking you in a dangerous position. You've suffered hardships in this world. You've been attacked and provoked by others. It's a common plight to suffer in this world. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 14, after multiple episodes of persecution and suffering, said, verse 22, "...through many tribulations..." we must enter the kingdom of God. He's right. The history of God's people is a history of suffering, difficulty, trial, tribulation. It is the norm in this world. Suffering was something that the Jews certainly understood. Even after they were allowed to leave Babylon and return to Judah after 70 years in exile, they still faced opposition. And you would think that hey, we're free, we're out of Babylon, the oppressor is gone, we're back in our land. But it was not quite as freeing as they might have anticipated. All they wanted to do when they first got back was simply to rebuild the temple. That's all. They just wanted a place where they could go and sacrifice their sacrifices and offer their worship to the living God they laid the foundation and the oppression and the pushback was so severe that for 15 years that foundation lay dormant, unbuilt upon. It was bare and the people had no place to gather for worship. Into that circumstance, the Lord sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage and exhort the people to resume the building of the temple. Zechariah's ministry Begins with a series of eight visions on the night that he identifies in verse seven of chapter one, the 24th day of the 11th month in the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, which we've been able to sort out and figure out as February 19, excuse me, February 15, 519 B.C. And on that night, the Lord came to him in a series of eight visions. And we've been looking at these visions together and this morning I want to consider with you chapter four and the fifth vision in which we will find this that God provides his people all they need to accomplish his purposes. Now that's not just some empty platitude. The the Israelites, specifically Judea, was back in the land. And what they had to accomplish was highly significant, rebuilding the temple, the place where God's glory dwelled and where they would go to worship. And they faced such oppression that they, in fear, in cowardice, in apathy, they pulled back and didn't do what they were called to do. And God said, I'll see you through. This vision is paired with the fourth vision, the two, the fourth and the fifth visions of these eight constitute the middle section. They're the heart of the visions and the revelation of God to the two leaders, Joshua in chapter three and Zerubbabel in chapter four. These are the two men that God had specifically sent the the chief priest and the chief king, as it were, governor, to rebuild the temple. And these two visions in pair remind us that God is faithful to enable us as well as Israel to serve Him effectively when we appropriate what He has given to us. As we've done with all these other, with all the other visions, I want to simply think with you about this in terms of what Zechariah saw, what Zechariah's vision meant, and then what Zechariah's vision reveals. First of all, what Zechariah saw in the vision. What Zechariah saw. Remember as well, as we come to this, that this is a vision. It's not a dream. They're, they're revelations from God in which Zechariah is shown realities. He is not sleeping. He is alert. He is awake. He is interactive. We saw that in the fourth vision in chapter 3. Uh, he is responding, he's thinking, he's processing, he is fully engaged. And so, when you read this in verse 1 of chapter 4, then the angel who was speaking with me, remember God give, gave him an angel to help him understand and interpret for him the visions that he was seeing. That angel returns now in this fifth vision. He returned and he roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He's not sleeping. The the word rouse means to incite or to stir up to some action. And notice that he says as as a man or like a man who is awakened. He's not saying I was asleep. I think what was going on is he was so engrossed with processing vision number four from chapter three that he's just he's gone as it were uh, but wives you know what this is like when you come into the room and your husband is engaged in some kind of project in his shop or he's reading the sports page or watching the ball game in the afternoon and you say hey honey uh no honey i need to talk to you yeah yeah and you say listen to me that's the angel he's not waking him up he's saying hey pay attention another vision is on the way. Snap out of it. Be alert. And then the angel asks him a question. And he said to me, what do you see? And like everything else in this vision, he saw something that really seems to be inscrutable. What do you do you do with this vision? He says, I see, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top, seven lamps with seven spouts, Lips, I think, was the, is that the ESV? Where did uh, William go? Was that the ESV you were reading? He's gone. It was. Okay, so that's a, that's a helpful translation with the lips. Seven spouts, seven lips belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Now, when you hear the word lamp and you think Israel, probably what you're thinking about is something like that, Right? That's a menorah. In fact, the word here is a derivative of the word menorah from which this word comes from. And so you think lamp with seven lights on it, which is what a menorah is. That is not likely what he saw. Notice he says he saw a lamp with a bowl on the top. Some translations have above it, like it was disconnected. I think it was the top of the lamp. Now remember, a lamp in the ancient Near East looked very different. They looked something like this. So a single wick lamp is at the bottom, right? So in that little spout or lip, you would lay a wick. And then into the bowl, you would put your oil, your olive oil, and they would light the wick, and then it would consume, draw that olive oil up and burn or you might have a really bright lamp and you would have a four-wick lamp like the ones at the top and on the side. So that holds four wicks. You get four times light. That's four candle power, I guess, in the ancient world. They have found, actually, lamps with seven lips on them. This was excavated from Jericho. That's a seven-lipped lamp. You've got to say that carefully. And um, so what we probably have is a lamp with seven of those bowls that each have seven lips on them. And it had, they were arranged around a bowl that was feeding them with the oil that they needed. So we don't have one like this. It was in a vision, right? But it it looked probably something like this. So the bowl is at the top, it's on a pedestal, and then the seven lamps with the seven lips are spread around the top of that lamp. Again, that bowl is the reservoir for the oil, and it would feed the lamps. And we know from the Old Testament that one of the jobs of the Levites was to make sure that the lamps always had oil. They had to continuously feed it. And just hang on to this. It's gonna, we're gonna come back to it at the end. One of the important points about this is there's, about this vision is that there's no human agency filling the lamps. God is acting to make sure that the lamps are filled with plentiful oil so that they can do what they are called to do. It is a means of God's grace and God's provision. That's being pictured in this. No human is saying, let's fill these lamps up and make sure they have oil. It's happening through God's provision. We know that it's not just the bowls that are being filled themselves. But if we come down to verse 12, I answered a second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes? which empty the golden oil from themselves. So you've got two trees on either side of this lamp, and that tells us that this lamp that you have pictured here is probably not a lamp like this, right? Those, those other little bowls you can hold in your hand. But it's probably something substantial. I would guess several feet tall. You've got the olive trees on the side, and they have channels... That are running down from the trees into the top of the bowl, feeding the bowl. So there's a perpetual supply of oil from the tree to the bowl to the lamps. So that no human has to act to create the light. With its size, with its 49 wicks, this would have been a tremendously bright light. It was also made out of gold. As you can see, most of these lamps were made out of pottery in that day. It would have been exceedingly unusual for a lamp like this to be made out of gold. So it it demonstrates its beauty, its preciousness, its value. Lamps also were used in the Old Testament at times to denote the presence of God, the character of God, the provision of God. So we find this. 2nd Samuel 22 verse 29 2nd Samuel 22:29 starting verse 28 he says you save an afflicted people but your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase because you are my lamp o lord and the lord illumines my darkness so you are my light you are the lamp that lights my way, and that's part of Psalm 119:105, 105, right? The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And certainly as Zachariah saw this vision, something like that had to be going through his mind. I wonder if this is picturing God's revelation of himself, the presence of God, and the, the beauty of God, the wonder of God. Zechariah saw the vision, sees it, explains it, verses, explains what he's seeing, verses 2 and 3. And then verse 4, he says, Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And it it, it, it seems like he's asking about the lampstand right at, Seems to make sense. He's got all these lamps. It's a kind of lamp that he probably had never seen before. He sees the lamps spread around this tall lampstand. It seems that that's what he's asking about. Later on in this chapter, in this vision, verse 11, he asks about the olive trees. and In fact, he asks about them twice, verses 11 and 12. So it could be that he's asking about the trees. It could be that he's asking about the lamps. It's a little bit indefinite. What we do know is this. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. While the vision is illuminated with light, his mind is not yet illuminated. He doesn't understand. He needs understanding, and that understand need for understanding is reinforced by the question of the angel, verse five. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, "Do you not know what these are?" And I said. No, my Lord. In fact, he's been asked that question by the angel previously, and that's the exact answer he gave previously. No, I don't know. I don't think the angel is being condescending. I don't think he's being critical. I think he's driving home to Zachariah. You don't know. You need help. You don't understand. You need someone supernatural to expose to you the understanding of what God has revealed to you. That's what he saw. What did it mean? Well, typically what the pattern has been is that the vision gets revealed, the explanation is given, and then oracles are delivered. What do you do with it? What, what are the visions intended to cause Zechariah and the others to do. In this instance, starting in verse 6, there is no explanation given, but an oracle is delivered. That is, something is said, this is what you're supposed to do. So he, he says, what are these? Verse 4. The angel says, don't you know? No, this is the word of the Lord. And then he goes into an explanation of what he's supposed to do, but he never answers what those things are until the middle of verse 10. In the middle of verse 10, he starts with the explanation. And this is what Zechariah's vision meant. Middle of verse 10. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And there has been vast quantities of ink that have been spilled over the question of what the seven are. I think the simplest thing is to go back and say, what's the immediate antecedent to the seven? What what were the previously mentioned seven? And it's the lamps in verse 2. So I think he's saying, um, these seven lamps will be glad. Now remember, we noted... That lamps in the Old Testament often indicate the presence of God. And so when he says the seven, the lamps will be glad, it is his way to say God will be glad in the day that... um, I lost my place. Verse 10. In the day that he, they, see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel... Now the question is, what's the plumb line? This is, there is a a word for plumb line in Hebrew, but that's not the word that's used here. This is the only place in the Old Testament this particular word is used. And it has been translated a variety of different ways. Some have translated it as capstone. So it's the last stone in the building. It's the keystone. It's It's the stone that holds everything together and ties it all together. It's the last thing. Others have translated it as the tin tablet, actually has one of the roots, has the idea of tin in it, and so the, the idea is perhaps it's a tin tablet or a tin stone, something decorative or ceremonial that would have been placed in a key place in the temple. Others, as the New American Standard, have have translated it as plumb line. And the plumb line, you're familiar with the plumb line, it's it's a, a string with a heavy weight at the bottom and you hold it up and you put it up next to something to check its trueness. Is it lined up perfectly? All of these are pointing to the completion and the finish of the temple. If it's plumb line, and I tend to think that's what it is, if it's a plumb line... Zerubbabel is holding up the plumb line after the building is done and saying see it's true it's straight it's finished nothing needs to be changed whether it's that or the capstone or the ceremonial stone that is added to the building after it is finished all of these indicate it's done and and in that regard they point to verse 9 the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house that happened 15 years ago And his hands will finish it. It's going to be done. And when it's finished, the Lord will rejoice. When the temple's finished, Yahweh will rejoice over its completion and over the people's obedience. We get a reaffirmation that The seven refers to the the Lord when he says at the end of this verse, these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. The eyes of the Lord indicates his omniscience and his wisdom. And he looks all through the earth and in his wisdom he sees everything and he is glad for what he sees and what has been accomplished in the building of the temple. So that's the explanation of what the lampstands are. What about the olive trees? That's what Zechariah asks, verse 11. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And, and I answered the second time. In other words, I'm not done yet. And I said to him, What are the two olive branches, which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil, uh, from themselves? That word, olive branches, is something like a cluster And it has the idea of what are those two clusters of olives from which emanate these two channels or two pipes that are taking oil from the tree, from those clusters of oil into the lamps. Golden oil, notice he emphasizes that, right? It's. Golden oil, we would expect that from olive oil. I mean, that's the natural color of olive oil. But I think he's also emphasizing its beauty, its purity, um, its preciousness, even as he did by pointing to the golden lampstand. So as the lampstand is golden, precious, pure, so the oil that flows into it also is precious and pure. Um, Just an aside, if you're going to get olive oil from an olive, off of an olive tree, you don't just tap into the tree and it starts flowing. And you know that, right? you got to take the olives out. you got to pit them. And then you got to press them. And then you got to purify the oil a couple of times in order to get just the right consistency and so on. And then you can use it for whatever you're going to use it for. And none of that's going on. And it's just a reminder to us not to press all of the details, this is like a parable, and it 's designed to teach us one primary thing or one set of truths and so all of the details don't don 't say, well, you know this is going on this is going to... no 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 we 're not meant to obsess about those things um, in fact, there were a couple of times as I was working through this, I, you know my mind is going uh, but this doesn 't work and I read a commentary, and he said, "Remember." these visions are meant not to walk on all fours. In other words, not every detail is pertinent. And and that's helpful for us to remember. As you think about oil, how is oil used in the Old Testament? If you flip back just a few pages, I don't know the number of books, but, oh, five or six books, to the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2, Remember, Joel is prophesying about the destruction of the land uh, through the invasion of the locusts from the Babylonians that would come in. And then he says to give hope to the people in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, Joel 2.18, and he will have pity on his people. Verse 19, this is what I want you to pay attention to. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. The oil, along with the other things, were given to denote God's blessing and the prosperity of the people. We find that same thing at the end of this chapter, near the end. Start in verse 25. Then I will make up for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I send among you, Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then the people will be put to shame. So I'm going to give you everything you need to eat. And you will be satisfied. I missed the the main verse. I was thinking it was twenty six, it's twenty-four. The threshing floors will be full of grain, the vats will overflow, and new wine it's oil. So I'm going to give you wine, I'm going to give you oil, I'm going to give you food, and you will be satisfied, verse 26. It's God's provision, it's God's care. And then notice Zachariah's confused. I still don't understand everything about these olive trees. And so the angel says to him again, verse 13, he answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Same thing that he said earlier in verse 5. Again, it's a reminder that Zechariah is dependent on God to illuminate and interpret. In verse 14, the angel reveals in very succinct fashion what those two trees are. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. As you think about anointing in the Old Testament, anointing was typically done for prophet. We find two or three instances, it was not always the case, but two or three instances in the Old Testament where prophets were anointed. But primarily, anointing was for the priest and for the king, for the sovereign. And while Zerubbabel was a governor, he was a vassal of the Medo-Persian Empire, he was not a king, he represents the king's role. He's the political authority in Judea, and interestingly, though he was not technically a king, he was of the Davidic line, and that's significant. And so in the context, it seems that the angel is saying the two anointed ones are the priest and the king, Joshua chapter 3. Zerubbabel chapter 4. These are the two that have been anointed, appointed by God, who will bring about the completion of the temple. They're the leaders that God has given to Judah to restore the temple. Interestingly, we we will see these two um, witnesses or anointed ones again. Revelation chapter 11. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So they represent specifically Joshua and Zerubbabel in the completion of the temple but what the readers don't understand yet is there's still a future fulfillment. The God will use these two in... as as models, as you were, or types of those who will come in the future and prophesy for the coming of the messianic kingdom. They also, as anointed ones, represent the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is often the illusion behind the picture of anointing oil. So when someone is anointed with oil, it is indicative that the Holy Spirit is coming on them. We see this, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 in verse 13 with David's anointing as king over Israel. Then Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day Forward, it was as if the anointing points to the fact that God's presence is on you through the Spirit of God. We find the same thing in Isaiah 61:1. So one writer says, these men are the channels by which Israel is kept supplied with the divine Spirit. It's an an indication that God has provided his spirit to accomplish his purposes in and through these men. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. And notice where these men are. They are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. It's a position of astounding honor and access. It is akin to what is said By the Lord of hosts, by God Himself, in the fourth vision in chapter 3, verse 7. If you'll walk in my ways, perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. I will give you access to the throne room of heaven. And here He reaffirms again that Zachariah, or excuse me, that Zerubbabel, and Joshua have that kind of access and they prefigure having that kind of access. They prefigure the one who will come as the ultimate priest and king, the Messiah, King Jesus. What should we learn from this vision? What does this vision reveal to us about God? Like all the other visions, this vision is ultimately a revelation about the nature of God, the character of God. It is a reminder to Zechariah, in this case to Zerubbabel as well, and all of the other returnees to Judah, that he, Zerubbabel, and they, all the returnees, are dependent on God to complete the temple. No one can do this. This is a God task. You think it's just a temple, it's just a bunch of bricks. No. No. It's a God-sized task that only he is able to accomplish. And and to make that point, he speaks two oracles. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord, verse 6, and again verse 8, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, so these are the two declarations from God about how Zechariah and those who will hear him are to think about this vision And in these two oracles, there are several truths about the nature of God and His provision for His people that are revealed. The first is given in verses 6 and 8. God has supplied an authoritative word. Notice he says, verse 6, He, that is the angel, said to me, This is the word of the Lord. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to me. The angel and Zechariah are making exceedingly clear. This isn't my message. This is God's message. This isn't just something that a man came up with or another being came up with. This is something that emanates from the throne of God. This comes from a singularly authoritative person. And specifically, It's God's message to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He's not just the governor. He was the governor, but he's not just the governor. We know from Ezra chapter 5 that he is one of the two people that God has put in charge of putting the temple back on its foundation. He's the responsible person. And God speaks to the one who is responsible to carry out the task And say, this is what I'm calling you to do. What these oracles reveal is that God has spoken authoritatively and His work will be accomplished. The temple will be restored. They need to trust that and they need to act on what God says. When God speaks, He always speaks with authority. And that authority means we can trust him. So when he says in verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation and he will finish it. You can trust that. And indeed, two years later, it was done. They can trust that. But authority doesn't just mean we can trust it. Authority also means we act on it. We're not apathetic to His truth. We carry out what His truth calls us to do. So if you flip forward a few pages to chapter 7 of Matthew, it says this. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So they say, oh yeah, Lord, you're you're ours. Lord, you're ours. And we did all this stuff for you. And the Lord's evaluation is, you didn't do what I called you to do. You did lawlessness. Verse 24, this is key. Therefore, this is Jesus' conclusion to that statement. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. When you hear the authoritative word of God, then you act on it. You do what he says to do. And one of the ways that we demonstrate, I'm trusting, I'm believing that God will accomplish what he said he would accomplish, is when we act. To do what he says when it doesn't necessarily seem logical from a human standpoint. And that is certainly what happened with Joshua and Zerubbabel. As we think about our callings, as we think about the future, and some of you are thinking a lot about Tuesday and what may or may not happen on Tuesday in the election and the the uncertainties about what will emanate from those elections around our country This is a reminder to us to be confident in Him. He's going to accomplish His purposes. And it's a reminder that regardless of what happens around us, we need to be faithful to continue the task to which He's called us to do. He has spoken. And we are compelled to continue. God has supplied an authoritative word. He has also supplied His determinative spirit. Verse 6 is the heart of this passage. It may be that verse 6 is the most well-known verse in the entire book. And it is a reminder to us that the temptation of God's people is always to attempt to fulfill God's work with man's tools. To try and do God's work without God's wisdom, without His Word, without prayer, or without any of the other divinely constituted means that God has given to us. And so the temptation for Israel is to look at their circumstances when they're being oppressed and they're being held back, is to say, we just need a bigger army. If we had a bigger army, we could get this done. If we had, if we had more cement trucks, we could just get this done. And the word of the Lord, the authoritative word that comes from the throne of God, says not by might. That's military power. That's military prowess. Not by might, nor by power. That's man's physical strength. That's what we inherently have in our own physical ability to do. And the Lord says not by them. Not by a long shot. It's not by horses. It's not by chariots. None of those are sufficient. Listen, man's tools never accomplish God's purposes. God's plans can only be fulfilled by God's means. Later, in the next generation, Nehemiah would come to build the walls. And it tells us in chapter 4 about Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 10 thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. We can't do it. There's too much garbage. There's too much, too much destruction as the walls were torn down. There's too much rubble that's left and we don't have the ability to do this. And that is exactly the point that is being made in this verse. The available manpower was wholly inadequate for the task. And brothers and sisters, it's always that way. In 2500 years, that hasn't changed. If we try man's means, we get what man can do. If we use God's means, we get what God can do. And this is a reminder. Don't use man's means. When he's given you another means, what has he given you? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's my spirit. It's the spirit of God that comes from him and is empowered by him. And notice that he says, it is my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of all of the armies, the Lord of all of the armies of the earth, the one who is surpassing the armies of heaven, surpasses the armies of hell, the one who has all authority and all power in his hands. He says, I'm sending my spirit to accomplish my word. That spirit we have seen act in the Old Testament from Genesis 1 two forward. It is His Spirit that is moving over the surface to bring about creation. It is His Spirit, Exodus 15, that blew and opened and then closed the Red Sea. It is His Spirit that breathes into men's Hearts and lives and brings them alive spiritually. Ezekiel 37, one of the the most amazing visions in the Bible. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel sees a a valley filled with dead men's bones. And he says, um, verse 4, The Lord said to him, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I'll put sinew on you, I'll make flesh grow on you, I'll cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you that you may come to alive and know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. I prophesied, and there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew on them, and skin covered them. There's no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, the wind. That word breath, wind, is the same word for spirit. And he says, prophesy to the breath, to the spirit, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, O spirit, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied, and the breath, the spirit came into them, and they came to their life, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is what the spirit of God does not just in regeneration in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well, it is the Spirit of God that breathes life spiritually into people. And we need an army to win? No, no, no. Zachariah says to Zerubbabel, you don't need an army. You need the Spirit. And you've been given the Spirit. This vision reminds us of God's provision and of man's inherent inadequacy. The same Spirit who created the world and equipped Zerubbabel, brothers and sisters, is available to us today. He has not changed. His power is not diminished. His presence is not limited. He is everything we need And we have him in us and with us. Again, notice that as the lamps are being fed, there's no human agency acting. This is all about God's provision of the oil, the spirit of life to equip man to do God's bidding. We don't have to drum the Spirit up. He's been given to us. It's all God's work and it's all the Spirit's work. Listen, the church does not need and we do not individually need more political power or more freedom from oppression and persecution. What we need is more submission to and dependence on the Spirit. That's what they needed then and that's what we need now. Nothing has changed. Thirdly, God has supplied unlimited power. Notice again, verses 6 and 9, twice he says, This comes from the Lord of hosts. This comes from omnipotent God, authoritative God. The question for the Israelites was something like, how are we going to get enough strength to do this task? How are we going to keep the oppressors from harming us? And this vision is a reminder, you, you don't have enough to do that, except you've been given omnipotent God who is on your side. And what they were forgetting was the power and authority of God who had been given to them. Brothers and sisters, ministry tasks and worldly pressures have not changed. There's always going to be resistance to God and the things that God has called us to do. But God is omnipotent. And his strength has not diminished from that day to this. Yeah, 2,500 years have passed. But that's like two and a half days in the economy of God. He's not gotten tired. He's not gotten weary. He is fully capable of... Of providing for us even as he promised to provide for them. And when you see things like the temple being completed two years after this vision. When you see things happen that you think that is incomprehensible. Like hardened sinners repenting and young adults growing in Christ. And old men remaining faithful to Christ. Notice the end of the verse. Verse um Verse 9, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Then you will know, Zachariah says, that the message that God has given me is true. When you see God accomplishing great tasks through imperfect people, then you know it's about him and not about you. It's his power, it's his authority. A fourth supply from the Lord is he has supplied an end into all troubles. Verse 7 is interesting. Notice verse 6, he says, Then he said to me, to Zechariah, the angel does, this is the word of the Lord, etc. And then in verse 7, he turns from talking directly to Zechariah, and it looks like he's talking to an inanimate object. But what are you, O great mountain? And what's the mountain? Well, the mountain then, it's a picture for Big problems, just like it is today. We 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 we, we say things like, "I've got a mountain of a problem. I I have this this mountain of an issue, and I don't know if I can get over it." And that's exactly what he's talking about. And he's talking directly to the problem. What are you, oh great mountain? What are you, oh insurmountable problem? Before Zerubbabel. You will become a plane. You'll be flattened. The biggest obstacle in the world is of no consequence to omnipotent God. He will bring an end to all problems. All of the accumulated problems from the whole history of the world that have been against God's people are of no more consequence to God than it takes effort from a child to blow the, the dandelion leaves or fuzz off the dandelion. And it's gone. It's no effort from God. and He will get to pass. The one who creates mountains with a word and levels them with another word is not perplexed like a few might with a few minor obstacles like the the leader of Medo Persia. It's not a problem. And in case you're not sure about it, just read Daniel 5 this afternoon. God shows up, hand on the wall, the writings on the wall that night. It's nothing. I don't intend this to be trite. But what's your biggest problem? And where's your anxiety? Brother and sister, it is no problem to God. He's not wringing his hands in heaven saying, Oh, Terry's got himself in a fix. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and it's done. It's no effort. Oh, did you notice this? What are you, a great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. Now, God's the one that's flattening it, right? God's the one that's bringing the mountain down, but he uses a human agent to accomplish it. A flawed, weak, inadequate man to accomplish his purposes. And isn't that just like God? To demonstrate it's not about us. It's about him. And again... Zerubbabel did that very thing. His hands will finish it. They did finish it. Ezra chapter 6 tells us that. Troubles are temporary. God is eternal. He will bring an end to all troubles. He has also supplied a gracious provision. Verse 7 He will bring forth a top stone that again indicates the temple's finished, it's done. The capstone, the top stone is put on it with shouts of grace. Grace to it. In other words, it's all by grace. It's nothing that man has done. It's not man's authority. When they couldn't finish the temple themselves, the Israelites prayed for grace, for undeserved favor, for their inadequacy, and they were graced by God and he accomplished it. Listen, he understands their frailty. And he provides for them by grace anyway. He understands our frailty. He understands my frailty. He understands your frailty. And he uses us anyway. Everything we do, it's by grace. It's God's favor on us. Lastly, God has supplied a work that is not small. When the Israelites came back from Israel... Or it came back from Babylon, came back to Israel. They laid the foundation. And it seemed that it was small. Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? They they did despise it. They looked at it. And they wept. We saw that in Haggai 2, four months earlier. Haggai, the prophet, says in chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Remember what Solomon's temple looked like? Those of you who were there. And do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? It's so much smaller. Its glory is so much weaker. Its grandeur is so much littler. And they wept. It's as if nothing. It's as if we have nothing. And they forgot at least two things. Little is much when God is in it. Brother and sister, we don't, we don't always see the whole picture of what God is doing. Remember the story, John chapter 6. Jesus has finished teaching and there's this crowd of people around him. They're hungry. The disciples are hungry. And Jesus says, well, go to town and buy some food. Jesus, we don't, we don't even have we don't have you know, a pittance to buy what it'd take to feed these people. Well, look around and see what you can scrape up. That's my translation. <laughs> Five loaves, two fish. <laughs> and the disciples said, but what is this for so many? And Jesus didn't say, but he could have said, you don't know the end of the story yet. You haven't seen what I'm going to do. And likewise, the people in Israel hadn't seen the end of the story. They hadn't seen that it's not just about the temple of that day; it's the future temple, and what God will do at the end of the age to bring all things to completion. Don't look and say this is nothing. Don't look at the ministries God has given you and say, "Well, this is just a this is just a small thing." You don't know. You don't know. If you're raising up the next Jonathan Edwards. You don't know if you're not discipling the next Billy Graham or the next John MacArthur. You don't know. You haven't seen the end of the story. Don't despise it just because it looks small. Because you can't see it with God's eyes. Second thing they forgot. Parallels. What happens now is not the end of the story. There's a Messiah coming. Everything else that's happening, there's a Messiah coming. Yes, you have a priest. Yes, you have a king. But you have one who will supplant both. And he will set up his throne. And all will be well. God is still working. I don't know if you noticed. But we earlier talked about a couple of guys who were hanging out on the ledge of a bridge and I didn't finish the story. We left them hanging. Literally. They needed a crane to get them off. The only crane that was available was tied up with another job, couldn't come. So the Department of Transportation came with a bucket truck. The civil engineer who did the extraction, one Steve McCarthy said, quote, it was my first goat extraction. <laughs> The initial plan was to try to separate the goats so that we could grab the goat facing the wrong way and turn it around. But the white goat wasn't cooperating. He's on an eight-inch ledge. And so McCarthy says, I'm going for it, he recalls. I grabbed the goat, the white one, as tight as I could and lifted it into the bucket. And then the white goat was deposited on the bridge and handed over to its owner's son, McCarthy then tapped the beam with a pole to encourage the brown one to make its way back. McCarthy is a happy man. Quote, In this day and age when things can go terribly wrong, it was great to see things go right. If people who are made in the image of God can be that compassionate, to an animal, what is the God who created people like? How compassionate is he? And how well will he provide for his people when they're in precarious predicaments? The vision of the vision of Zechariah 4 demonstrates that what Judah needed to complete the temple God provided. And it also demonstrates that what we need to complete our service to the Lord, He provides. He gives us for what we need for our ministries, whether we're teachers or disciples or counselors. He prepares us for our roles in life, our role for husband or wife, parent or child, employee, citizen, neighbor. And He provides for all of our spiritual life to grow in Christ-likeness. If we have a need, He has provided so He will be exalted as His work is demonstrated through us. We're never alone. We're never left powerless. He has called us to work for Him and He has given us everything we need to accomplish that work. Our Father, thank You for the reminder Of your sufficiency, your power, your authority, your grace in this vision. It was something that was given to Zechariah for Zerubbabel and Joshua and the returnees from Babylon 2,500 years ago. But it is just as relevant to us today. No, we're not building a literal temple. But we're here in service of you and things feel oppressive to us. Hard, we're burdened. And you are just as sufficient today as you were then. Thank you for the grace that we need and the grace you have supplied. Especially the grace that comes to us from the Spirit of God who inhabits us. In his name or the name of Christ who sent him, we pray. Amen.